and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. Beginning with the cover story, in culture, old and new traditions take hold in Des Moines again, by Emily Barsky. The COVID-19 pandemic altered many of Des Moines' activities and entertainment options that we hold dear as traditions. For this year's photo issue, we wanted to show some of the old and new traditions bringing a renewed optimism into the community. Our photographers captured just a few of the many traditions, and our readers told us what they are most excited to have back this year. Have a story idea we should be covering as Des Moines embraces its return to community gatherings and events? Email E-M-I-L-Y-B a r s k e at b p c d m dot com downtown farmers market evolves brings back tradition the downtown farmers market rang the opening bell on court avenue on may first to kick off a new season of live in-person markets the long-awaited season has been exciting for the market's staff who last year had to find creative ways to keep vendors and customers connected after the in-person market was canceled because of the coronavirus pandemic. In 2020, they held Facebook Live events, online markets, and drive-through markets. With safety guidelines in place to protect patrons and vendors from coronavirus, the in-person market was able to return this year. Plans were made before a mid-May announcement from the CDC, which said vaccinated people were safe to gather and not wear masks in most settings. The downtown farmer's market then adjusted some of its plans, allowing more vendors to participate and more activities to be held, while still recommending that patrons take safety precautions. Back in the ballpark. A principal park crowd watched an Iowa Cubs game, Due to the coronavirus pandemic, the minor league baseball didn't have a season in 2020. Arts Festival After a year off due to the pandemic, the Des Moines Arts Festival returned June 25th to 27th in downtown Des Moines at the Western Gateway Park. The event featured more than 160 artists in the categories of visual, performing, interactive, music, and film. We asked readers, what activities did you miss in 2020 that you're excited to partake in again this year? An Iowa State Fair fanatic has attended opening day for more than 25 years, including 2020 when there was no fair. While not nearly as much fun as sharing the experience with the 100,000 plus daily attendees, I still visited some of my favorite attractions, such as the Bill Riley stage, sheep barn, and a lemonade stand. I am so looking forward to August 12th. Submitted by Emily Abbas, Senior Vice President, Chief Consumer Banking and Marketing Officer at Bankers Trust Company. Karen Swalwell, President of Francis & Associates, said, Live music, especially home ditty house concerts. Moores and McCumber playing at Karen and Rick Swalwell's home through home ditty. This reader missed Urbandale's famous 4th of July weekend festivities. 
Derek Zarn and other participants at the 2019 hot dog eating contest at the Urbandale 4th of July celebration submitted by Derek Zarn communications specialist city of Urbandale. Kim Hegedus, executive vice president at Community State Bank said attending the ABI taking care of business conference leadership Iowa graduation in person and Bernie Stone, president of Strategic Scouts Consulting, said, attending and speaking at conferences. Iowa veterans participate in panel discussions during Entree Fest 2021 in Cedar Rapids. I missed live music. Photo submitted was from Hinterland Music Festival, where in addition to enjoying a weekend filled with great acts, I also discovered how popular you can be with your adult children when you volunteer to be the designated driver. Submitted by Diana Diebler, President, Diebler & Company. I missed Thursday nights at Jasper Winery, Farm Kids Burritos at Farmer's Market, Networking Socials, Nonprofit Galas, Brenton Summer Concerts. The list could go on and on, but those are the big ones. Submitted by Nick Callison, Business Development Executive, BKD, CPAs and Advisors. Movies. Seeing a film on the big screen while sharing popcorn is one of our family's most cherished activities. We are excited to see as many films as many at as many of the great venues as possible. The first public activity we did after being fully vaccinated was to take our grandson to a movie, Raya and the Last Dragon. Submitted by Ann Bacon, Executive Director, Impact Community Action Partnership. Liz Tesar, Director of Development and Communications at Blank Children's Hospital submitted, we are thrilled to be back in person for the 38th Annual Festival of Trees and Lights, benefiting Blank Children's Hospital. Every year, 20,000 people kick off their holiday season at the Iowa Events Center. We start the week with our festival gala, a night of inspiration and fun. We continue with a five-day community event that includes 80-plus beautifully decorated trees, festival tree farm, food, entertainment, children's activities, Festival Family Flick, Scavenger Hunt, Santa, and more. Dew Tour takes on Des Moines. Within weeks of its official opening, the Lordson Skate Park hosted the Dew Tour in early May. The events were World Skate sanctioned men's and women's skateboarding street and park competitions serving as the only U.S.-based global Olympic skateboard qualifying events for the Olympic Games in Tokyo this summer. Skateboarding is scheduled to make its debut at Tokyo Games, and the Lordson Skate, Bar Skate Park's street and park courses had been approved as an Olympic-level competition venue. At 88,000 square feet, the Lordson Skate Park is the largest in the country. The Des Moines Skate Park is the result of a partnership among Polk County, Catch Des Moines, Skate DSM, and the local skateboard shop, Subset. It was built by California Skate Parks, the skate park architects of the Dew Tour since 2014. The next feature story is Solidarity, 
Not Charity, A Look at Mutual Aid in Iowa by Emily Blobaum and Kate Hayden. Editor's Note This is part one of a two-part series on mutual aid organizations in Iowa, produced by the Business Record in conjunction with our Fearless Initiative, which focuses on women and gender topics with an intersectional approach. While mutual aid organizations are not new, the work has become more known, thanks in part to social media and renews, renewed calls to action in the social justice space. Mutual aid organizers strive to create better communities for all, which affects all sectors of our state. Thousands of Iowans contribute to and lead mutual aid efforts, and we could only talk to a handful of them for this series. Have a story idea for future coverage? Reach out to business record editor Emily Barsky at emilybarsky at bpcdm.com. Google searches for mutual aid saw sharp increases first as the pandemic raged in the U.S. and then again after the killing of George Floyd in 2020. But though the term is newly recognized and the work of organizers has certainly surged, mutual aid has a long history. What is mutual aid? Mutual aid is collective coordination to meet needs, usually from an awareness that the systems that are currently in place aren't going to meet them. Dean Spade, an activist and law professor, wrote in his book, Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. Madeline Terry, an organizer in Des Moines who helped start Des Moines Mutual Aid two years ago, thinks of mutual aid in the context of a house fire. When the house is burning, mutual aid is everyone getting together with garden hoses immediately whereas charity is waiting for an established entity like the fire department to arrive, she said. Mutual aid is about us aiding one another to solve problems in our community and not waiting for charities or the government to come in, Terry said. It's people in the community sharing their resources with other people. We don't employ experts. We don't wait for experts. It's all about what we can do, she said. Mutual aid organizers adopted the slogan, Solidarity, Not Charity, to emphasize the focus on helping others with no strings attached. In Iowa, organizers have pooled together resources for a variety of community needs for decades, whether it was during the farm crisis or during the current pandemic. Monica Ozarski is an organizer behind the Sweet Tooth Community Fridge, a communal space in the Riverbend neighborhood of Des Moines where anyone can donate or access free food 24-7. She believes mutual aid removes deservedness and hierarchy around whether you meet the right income requirements or are disadvantaged enough. Mutual aid means meeting people where they're at and listening and seeing people as full humans and fully worthy of whatever they're asking for. Ozarski said. The people utilizing the fridge get to decide how much they need and how much they want. There's no sign up and there's no registration. 
The only prerequisite is that you're hungry or your family is hungry. When you have so much gatekeeping towards aid because of a board or grants to fill, and that isn't necessarily wrong or right, but when you strip that all away, many people feel empowered and feel community ownership over this resource. Whereas at a nonprofit, there are people in nice offices who wear nice clothes who get to decide whether you get things or not. A resource like this, we're coming together, she said. Zachariah Hill is the co-founder and executive director of the Supply Hive, a nonprofit organization that seeks to nourish the community. She said the difference between charity and mutual aid organizations is feeling, or the absence of feeling, shame. I do not feel shame in calling upon my community and peers for help. When receiving aid from charitable organizations, it just felt like a handout. Being in the mutual aid space, I really have connected with my community more. I know where everything is coming from and where it's going, she said. Ozarski said mutual aid builds community through fostering relationships, but it also requires an understanding that there's a political component at play, she said. The reason for a lot of people's lack of resources is not because of a failing of themselves. It's not because they've done something wrong. It's that the systems of government currently in our society are fundamentally flawed and are not able to provide people with what they need, Ozarski said. Mutual aid is often tied to social justice, as organizers work to meet the needs of underrepresented people who face inequity when society's systems have failed to do so. Based around northwestern Iowa, the Great Plains Action Society began coalescing in 2014 as founder Christine Nobis organized indigenous communities for environmental and social justice action. The organization was formally created in 2016 to support indigenous action across the Great Plains of North America, spanning from the Gulf of Mexico into the Canadian provinces of Alberta provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Tricia Ettringer, Operations and Digital Media Director for the Great Plains Action Society, lives in Sioux City, but she and other members were quickly connected to Des Moines Mutual Aid volunteers at the start of 2020, which helped the team begin their own household supplies drives for Native peoples living in the region. Community-led support is not a new tool for Indigenous people, Ettringer said. When indigenous organizers talk about mutual aid, we're in a sense combating capitalism because we're not feeding into the big corporations. We're not depending on the government to basically help us out. We're doing it by ourselves, Ettringer said. We've done that before the first contact with settlers. We were self-sustaining and provided for ourselves. That capitalistic system was never set up for us to survive. We've had our buffalo killed which depleted our food source, and from there it was a snowball. We're living through those effects from what happened so long ago, she said. Volunteers at the Great Plains Action Society collected basic daily supplies, including toiletries, food, clothing, and cleaning supplies in the Sioux City metro region, where they serve members of the Rosebud Sioux, Yankton Sioux, Omaha, and Winnebago tribes. 
At the start of the pandemic, there was a big scare for our Native communities, especially with the urban Native community, Ettringer said. For a lot of our tribal members, you have to live on the reservation to get assistance. Some people don't have transportation, making it difficult to get back to their homelands to get assistance, Ettringer said. We wanted to provide that extra safety and alleviate the stress of, are we going to get food or are we going to get cleaning supplies? We wanted to alleviate that so they didn't have to make the difficult choice, especially when they have kids. Going forward, we'll be able to be more interactive with the community. We're still in the late stage of the pandemic, so we're very cautious, she said. The Great Plains Action Society team uses Fundly.com for virtual fundraising to support their ongoing initiatives, including the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Fund, which supports legal fees, memorials, and the travel costs for the families and survivors of domestic abuse. Video testimonials have been especially powerful in spreading their work, Ettringer said. Our youth do TikToks. I'm still learning those things too, but it's really fun. It's the coming together of generations, and they're teaching me how to do it, she said. I never knew that social media would be this big, powerful tool. Hill and Supply Hive co-founder Aaliyah Quinn agree that social media plays a large role in the Supply Hive's efforts in both raising awareness and collecting donations. Social media is definitely where our upbringing was. We started off with one Instagram post and now here we are doing a lot of big things, Quinn said. The Supply Hive uses apps like Cash App and Venmo for fundraising, saying it's easier. Collecting the two, three, five dollars from hundreds of people really adds up quick. The QR codes also make it easy to connect with people quickly, Hill said. Ozarski said social media is a double-edged sword when managing the Sweet Tooth community fridge. On one hand, social media is a useful tool to disseminate information about what the fridge does or doesn't have at a given moment. But on the other hand, the fridge operates just fine outside of social media, she said. In 2021, I feel like it's a requirement to have some social media, but I struggle sometimes to post about it because things run without it. People will come regardless of if people post that it's stocked. I don't need to publicize it. It's really great to share things, but at the same time, a lot of people who use the fridge are not on social media. I feel very protective of the people who use this fridge. I don't want anyone to ever feel like I'm using their struggle or their hardship to garner donations, she said. We have a rule that you can't take pictures of anyone utilizing the fridge, and if you do, you will be asked not to come back, she said. The Great Plains Action Society is developing partnerships with Unity and Action in South Sioux City, Nebraska, and members of the American Friends Service Committee. Both organizations are working heavily in immigrant communities where many community members work alongside indigenous community members in the meatpacking plant workforce. Holding indigenous-led initiatives, quote, basically acknowledges that we're here, that we had some sense of how this world operated before our first contact, and we took care of that. We honored that. 
And we still do those things today, Ettringer said. That's our own spin on mutual aid and our perspective. We want to make sure we always put children and our elderly first, but we always want to make sure that all of our own is taken care of. That doesn't mean we're going to just be inclusive of ourselves, but we want everybody, especially people of color, because this history of America hasn't always done that, she said. They don't like to encroach on anybody else's work, Ettringer said, but they put themselves out there to help. The past year working with other communities of color highlighted successful collaboration, she added. It can be challenging because it's not the oppression Olympics. It should never that be that way. It should be, this is what happened to your people. This is what happened to my people. That's really similar. How can we help each other now heal from that? And how can we help our future generations, she said. The Supply Hive makes a point to partner with other mutual aid organizations and nonprofits in the community, including Edna Griffin Mutual Aid, North Des Moines Mutual Aid, Eat Greater Des Moines, the Young Women's Resource Center, and Art Force Iowa. We can't do it all. There's power in numbers, and there's only so much we can do, Hill said. It's really important to do something and do it well, rather than only giving half your effort. There's plenty of people and organizations that are good at a lot of things, so keeping communication and relationships open is important. Part two of this series, which focuses on the stories of mutual aid organizers and the mission of their organizations, will run in the July 9th edition of the Business Record. As a sidebar, what's the history of mutual aid? The idea of mutual aid has been around for centuries. The term is thought to have been popularized by Russian anarchist philosopher Peter Kropotkin in the late 19th century, who argued that cooperation was the driving force behind evolution, rather than competition. Prominent examples of mutual aid in action include the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program, disaster relief efforts after Hurricane Katrina, and most recently the sharing of resources throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and the nationwide protests against police brutality. Paul Lasley, professor of sociology at Iowa State University, said, Crisis tends to bring about the best in people, whether it's a personal loss or tragedy. In Iowa, the farm crisis of the 1980s and destruction from floods or tornadoes in the last few decades are visible examples of mutual aid in communities, Lastly said. The key is oftentimes leadership, taking that idea, then adding and engaging others to show some initial success. Then there's nothing like an initial success that will cause other people to get involved, he said. Lastly said one of the challenges in community organizing is always ensuring the strength of the base. The way you do that is to ensure that everybody's voice counts. Oftentimes the problem becomes that people want to jump to the end. They're anxious, energized, excited, but they fail to think about, okay, who else are the important stakeholders in our effort? Who else might we partner with? Who else has resources, experience, or knowledge that can help us? Equally important is who is going to be opposed. You've got to anticipate what the barriers are going to be 
who's going to say, that's not needed, that's not important? One of the barriers throughout mutual aid's history is how it's perceived, and sometimes those perceptions are political in nature. When farmers organized in the 1920s and 1930s, Lasley said, there were people who said, this is a step towards socialism and cooperatives should have no role. There's always going to be this tension, but effecting social action requires some clearly stated articulate goals and developing an action plan, he said. That's what's going to create sustainability in any kind of social movement. Now turning to the business records insider notebook, bits and bytes of the finer side of Iowa business. DMARC report details impact of food insecurity on people of color by Michael Crum. People of color in central Iowa experience food insecurity at disproportionately higher levels than others, according to a recent report by the Des Moines Area Religious Council that details just how much more frequently people of color sought assistance from the organization's food pantry system. The report, released June 16th, looked at food insecurity in 2020 and the demographics of people who visited DMARC's 14 partner food pantries and more than 30 mobile food pantry locations. DMARC helped 58,707 individuals through its food pantry system in 2020, the report showed. According to Feeding America, 54 million Americans were food insecure last year as the coronavirus pandemic tightened its grip on the United States. Nearly 600,000 Iowans were food insecure. In Iowa, the Food Bank Network served about 50 million meals in 2020, up from 33 million in 2019. While the fact that food insecurity affects people of color at higher rates than their white counterparts is well documented, the report shows just how much greater the impact has been. Data for the DMARC report was based on information collected from people seeking assistance during an intake process, where various demographic questions are asked, including about race and ethnicity. General population data was taken from the U.S. Census Bureau's 2019 American Community Survey. The report, which comes as DMARC celebrates the 45th anniversary of its food pantry network, breaks down the number of food pantry visitors in Des Moines, Ankeny, Johnston, Urbandale, Clive, and West Des Moines by ethnicity compared with the general population. For example, in Des Moines, Black residents make up 11% of the population, but accounted for 22% of visitors to DMARC food pantries. In Ankeny, black residents make up 2% of the population, but were 15% of food pantry visitors. In Johnston, black residents are 3% of the population, but accounted for 38% of visitors to food pantries in 2020. Similar results were found in the other communities included in the report. The report states that the reasons for the disproportionate rate of food insecurity among people of color, quote, are not happenstance, end quote. While our society has made progress, the history of racial discrimination in housing, education, health care, employment, 
political representation, the justice system, the financial system, and other systems and institutions goes back hundreds of years, and we continue to see the impacts of these racist policies to this day, the report states in its executive summary. Racial disparities in food insecurity and other intersecting issues of poverty are still prevalent in our nation, state, and local community, it said. The report also states that equitable solutions to food insecurity in central Iowa need to be found, quote, and one of the first steps in that process is recognizing disparities as they exist today, end quote. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, July 2nd, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Back in the Insider Notebook, Business Record receives national recognition, awards from Industry Association by Emily Barsky. The business record was nationally recognized with three awards from the Industry Association of Leading Business Publications on June 23rd. Our mission to help businesses do business better is driven by supporting our community and state. We exist because of engaged audience members who turn to us for news so they can be equipped with information to help their businesses and communities thrive. This is why we do the work we do, not to win awards but we are particularly grateful to be recognized for the work we are doing, especially when we consider the challenges the last year and a half have brought. The Alliance of Area Business Publishers, made up of members from business publications in major U.S. cities, recognized the business record in the following categories of the 2021 Editorial Excellence Awards. Silver, Best Newspaper Medium Market. This publication is solid throughout in both content and visuals, the judges wrote. The staff tackles tough social subjects, relates them to business, and executes them well. Thoughtful stories and outstanding design make the publication live up to its mission. Gold, best specialty newsletter, Fearless. This newsletter stands apart in its commitment to a large and continuously growing facet of the publication's readership, judges wrote. The staff uses its editorial content to connect readers while acknowledging the real-life challenges that come with leadership in today's environment. Editors share a strong voice that sets a tone offering actionable advice while encouraging community and comradeship. And Silver, Best Multimedia, Black Lives Matter Photo Gallery. This collection showed honest emotion through a comprehensive and rich selection of documentary photojournalism, judges wrote. The images detailed the passionate emotions of those supporting Black Lives Matter. The pictures also caught uncomfortable interactions with police from a vantage point right in the middle of the action. Meanwhile, the collection of building photographs provided an interesting study of the protest's aftermath. It is an honor to be considered one of the best business publications in the country. Our newsroom works hard to provide important stories on key issues business leaders should know about. I am proud of each of our team members for all the work they do to keep up with news happening in our their coverage areas, which there has been no shortage of during the pandemic. 
Our reporters strive to present complex issues through fair and balanced stories. And our photographers, copy editor, designers, and operations team help ensure that we present it in the most compelling way possible. As a locally owned media organization, we take great care to keep the community at the heart of our work, whether we're writing a brief on a fundraiser or an in-depth feature on a major issue affecting our region. In the past year, we've worked hard to set strategy around how we put our long-held values of diversity, equity, and inclusion into action every single day. We are pleased by the recognition of our fearless newsletter, which was launched in November as part of a larger initiative to help Iowa women succeed in work and life. Our team put countless hours into strategizing and listening to our audience to formulate what fearless ultimately ended up being. Fearless editor Emily Blobaum uses her passion and talents to make the newsletter outstanding each week with key focuses on making it intersectional so that all women, gender nonconforming individuals, and men can feel a part of it. If you are not already a Fearless subscriber, please consider signing up for the free weekly newsletter. We are equally pleased that our Black Lives Matter photo gallery received recognition. Since the time that gallery was published, we've worked hard to place a greater emphasis on racial equity in our coverage and launched a Racial Equity Advisory Board. Our work to do better and elevate the voices of people of color is far from over and will be an ongoing journey. We continuously seek to understand how we can improve where we've fallen short. We do not take lightly our role in educating our community and state leaders about the barriers our neighbors and colleagues of color face in Iowa. Without our members, none of this would be possible. Support of our work means more than any award ever could. Consider becoming a member if you aren't already. And as always, feel free to give us feedback or ideas at any time so that we can continue serving you. Next, Des Moines nonprofit ArtForce Iowa to go 100% virtual after move from Social Club by Joe Gardiez. Christine Herr firmly believes in managing risks. I spoke recently with her who has led ArtForce Iowa as its executive director for almost five years, for a story that I'm working on about food insecurity. In that interview, I learned that the Des Moines nonprofit will, for the foreseeable future, operate entirely without any physical studio or office space after moving out of the Des Moines Social Club building downtown at the end of June. While it was a difficult decision, her believes that it's the best move for her clients and the organization. ArtForce Iowa should save about $20,000 on rent over the next year as it continues to offer programs and workshops on a virtual basis as staff members work remotely from home. Many of the young clients of ArtForce Iowa are in the state juvenile detention system, her said, so she and her staff often can't see those kids in person. Additionally, the immigrant teens that the organization works with and their families are distrustful of the government and aren't getting immunized for COVID-19. A lot of factors come together, came together to multiply that mistrust during the pandemic. 
you know, this community works in the meat packing plants and you hear that managers and supervisors are doing these really disgusting things like betting on who was going to get sick and die, Hearst said. And then you find out that the Johnson & Johnson vaccines were the ones being used at those meat packing plants. And the FDA says, stop using Johnson & Johnson, it's harming people. That becomes the language that our community hears. See, I knew they wanted to hurt me. And now I don't trust any of the vaccines because I don't trust the government and I don't trust my employer. So it's hard to come back from that and to change that narrative, she said. Her, who is the daughter of Hmong refugees from Laos, is an East High School graduate who earned a degree in creative writing, philosophy, and political science from Drake University. She has good reasons to be cautious and not only from her family's experiences as refugees and immigrants. Three years ago, a flash flood inundated Art Force Iowa's previous studio space in Des Moines, destroying $100,000 worth of art equipment and supplies. I have to be cautious because if I'm not thinking about the possible risks that come with this organization, then it could really hurt us because we are so small, she said. I had no idea that we were going to come back from that. She also wants to avoid the turmoil of transitioning to a new space with a new owner for now. Due to our past trauma, I wanted to be very mindful that we know what it's like to go through this transition, she said. There's no reason for us to be in this, these spaces when our young people are also afraid to get their vaccines. So that just means we're not doing in-person workshops and everything is virtual and all in-person workshops during the summer are going to be outdoors in a park, so we don't need a physical space, she said. During the interview on Zoom, I could see stacks of cardboard boxes behind hers desk. Moving boxes? Not exactly. Each is filled with about $400 worth of art supplies packaged and ready to be distributed to young clients. Last year, Art Force Iowa was one of just three organizations to receive a $50,000 grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, which Art Force used to make the kits to help kids get through the isolation of COVID quarantines. We've been able to deliver close to 300 of these kits in the last eight months, impacting over 800 youths, she said. These are going to be packed last into a storage unit as close as we can to the doors so that when kids are in need of art, we can access them easily. Now the closer look column, meet a leader you should know. Joe Christine Miles, Director, Principal Community Relations and the Principal Foundation Incorporated by Joe Gardiaz. After her husband accepted a position in Des Moines in the fall of 2019, Joe Christine Miles was at first doubtful that Iowa's capital city would provide any opportunities that fit her background and education. Living and working in New York City, Miles had recently left a successful career as a corporate restructuring lawyer with one of the country's largest law firms to become a philanthropy consultant. In that role, she provided expertise to a number of influential private foundations and nonprofits, including the Rockefeller Philanthropic Advisors, the New York State Health Foundation, the Nathan Cummings Foundation, the New York Women's Foundation, and the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts. 
She previously was a public policy fellow for Philanthropy New York, where her work focused on equitable and inclusive philanthropy, gender equity, health, and international grant making. In October 2020, Principal Financial Group announced that Miles would lead Principal's corporate and nonprofit philanthropic initiatives as Director of Principal Community Relations and the Principal Financial Group Foundation, Inc. In these roles, Miles oversees the breadth of efforts at Principal and the Principal Foundation to strengthen communities around the world through grant making, employee and match giving, volunteerism, research, and sponsorships. How did you become aware of Principal Financial Group, and what about Principal attracted you to join them in this position? Well, to be perfectly honest about that, there was an active recruitment of my husband by Principal, and he and I talked extensively about the company during the recruitment process. There was a point in the process where I came out and met folks, and we were both quite impressed with the company and the individuals who were involved in his recruitment. My husband commuted between New York and Des Moines starting in October 2019, and the boys and I were slated to move in 2020 when the New York City schools completed their academic year. But the pandemic intervened, and the boys and I came in March. And it was one day in the summer in 2020 that I happened to be on LinkedIn and saw a posting for the foundation role. Tell me about your early life experiences. Were they formative to your career? My childhood was a bit unusual in that I can't claim a particular neighborhood, city, or subset of schools as my anchor. I moved just about every two years as a youngster. I went to four different high schools in two different states and in one other country. I've lived coast to coast, California, Alabama, New York, the longest I had been anywhere was the four years I spent in college in Houston, Texas, and then I spent over 20 years in New York. There was something early on in my life that attracted me to the law, so when I was nine, I said I would be a corporate lawyer, although I knew no corporate lawyers and really didn't have a good sense for what they did. And ultimately, that is what I did. I practiced corporate restructuring law for just under 20 years in New York. After we had our second child, I left law and went back to school to pursue a degree in international affairs with a focus on economic development, with the goal of going into philanthropy. Was it more challenging for you to pursue success in your legal career as a black woman? I probably knew all of the corporate restructuring attorneys of color like me in the nation because that's how few of them there are. And in New York, notwithstanding how diverse the city is, I had some interesting experiences practicing. I remember once when I went to court, they thought I was an intern or something. But when I approached the podium, the opposing counsel's jaw kind of hit the table, and we had an interesting exchange on the record that was a lot of fun. After the hearing, he said to me, Why didn't you tell me? I was like, You didn't ask. You know what they say about assuming. I had a rather successful legal career. I became a partner in five years. It usually takes eight to ten. I think that work ethic is genetic. I come from a long line of really hard workers, people who cashed visions for their lives and for the lives of their family. 
What opportunities do you see for strengthening principal's role in philanthropy in your new position? Something that attracted me to principal even during my husband's process was its integrity and its commitment to its stated purpose of really helping to foster financial security. That came through in all the conversations. It's what attracted me to apply when I saw the opening because that surely was not my expectation. So in terms of the opportunity to expand principal's presence in the philanthropic sector, it's really number one to tell that story and to create a portfolio of social investment, which is how we refer to investing in society. And our return is the impact that people experience from those social investments. Number two, it's increasing visibility nationwide and across the company's global footprint. I think that's something that principal would like to see happen, and I think it's something that the foundation can do in a much more efficient and effective way. It must have been a big plus for both you and Principal, having recently finished a master's degree in international affairs at Columbia. I talk about serendipity, and this is like the textbook definition of serendipity. I worked in the philanthropic sector in New York before coming here, and really had resigned myself to the thought that I wouldn't find work in this sector full-time here in Des Moines. Principal's international locations are in areas with, that were of particular interest to me when I was studying throughout Asia and Latin America. I attended high school in Mexico City, so that nation, that region, holds a special place in my life and in my personal development. So being able to possibly give back in a big way and to build the principal brand and goodwill in that region would be fantastic. Especially as COVID eases, will you be traveling a lot nationally and internationally? Definitely an important part of the grant-making process, something that all foundations do, is what we call a site visit. So that would require some travel. It's not a daily or weekly travel schedule, but it would require some trips a few times per year. I think there is an obligation on the community relations side to do those types of visits as well. How large of a team do you work with in community relations and the foundation? We have a small but mighty team. There are five team members, but we do have two positions open. My goal is to fill that in the third quarter and we'll see how things progress. I think with the technological solutions that COVID has allowed everyone to test, particularly the foundation and community relations, we are better able to appreciate the reach that we can have without necessarily having more bodies on the ground. Are there particular new initiatives that we may see launch in the next year or two? Yes, we're in discussions with a couple of folks, so I'm not at liberty to give a great amount of detail, but we will be supporting some national programs that would really help move the needle in our core area of interest, which is financial security. That's programmatic. We'll be giving grants in more places. Historically, the foundation has really focused its giving in this region, region which is superb. I think Des Moines is a wonderful example of what can happen when you have committed corporate citizenship. So we'll be giving more money in more places, but operationally, I think people will see some changes as well. What do you and your family enjoy doing in your free time? When we first arrived at the height of the pandemic, 
Everything was closed, and no one was much interested in meeting people they didn't know, especially from the epicenter, New York, so we were pariahs. We spent a lot of time driving around the state, so we've seen quite a few of the state parks. New York is a pedestrian city, and it will be some time before we grow out of that mindset. You have a wonderful trail system, and so we spend a lot of time walking around. We acquired a dog when we arrived, so of course that dog needs a lot of walking. Now Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. Worrisome words. The Iowa Supreme Court's poor choice of words in its recent dismissal of a high-profile Raccoon River pollution case is striking. In refusing to allow the case to proceed to trial, the 4-3 majority opinion written by Justice Edward Mansfield sets a precedent that appears to severely limit the court's power in the future. Quote, in the end, we believe it, allowing the case to proceed, would exceed our institutional role to hold the state accountable to the public. Those words used by the plaintiff to describe what they ask of us go beyond the accepted role of courts and would entangle us in overseeing the political branches of the government, the opinion says. I'm not a lawyer, but that is way off base. Allowing the case to continue would not entangle the judiciary and politics any more than it already is. However, dismissing the case on the grounds cited by Mansfield does. It also flies in the face of a simple truth we all learned in American history and government classes, namely that the founders created the courts as a third branch of government to act as a referee and be the ultimate determiner of what is and is not legal. Historically, the court was slow to step into that role. It did so initially in a backhanded ruling by Chief Justice John Marshall in 1803, which set a precedent for declaring laws unconstitutional. Since then, politicians as well as judges have expanded the powers of courts to the point where the Iowa Supreme Court was able to unanimously declare in 2009 that gay marriage is legal in Iowa. A voter backlash to that opinion removed three justices, including Chief Justice Marsha Turnus. Not surprisingly, the voters' decision produced a more conservative court. But now it seems the Iowa Supreme Court is so averse to controversy that it refused to do its duty in the Raccoon River lawsuit, which would have been to simply allow the case to proceed. In dismissing the case, the four-justice majority did something courts rarely do. They answered questions that were not asked. Worse yet, they ruled that the two activist groups that brought the lawsuit had no standing to do so, even though the state had already conceded the plaintiffs had standing. In an analysis of the decision, Drake University law professor and agricultural law expert Neil Hamilton noted that the majority opinion spent 10 pages, quote, considering the merits and possible judicial outcomes to ultimately conclude the case involved non-justiciable political questions, end quote. That's another no-no because, as anyone familiar with the law will tell you, at this stage of litigation, the court should not be considering the merits of the case. While I share the majority's doubt as to how successful the plaintiffs will be, 
Expediency is not a basis for dismissing cases, wrote dissenting Justice Dana Oxley. Justice Brent Apple also dissented, saying the majority wrongly applied federal precedent to a state case. Unlike the federal courts of limited jurisdiction, general jurisdiction state courts were designed to be problem-solving courts with sufficient judicial power to effectively resolve a wide range of disputes brought to the local courthouse by citizens, Apple wrote in his dissent. Clearly, the Raccoon River case involves serious constitutional questions that will not be resolved without litigation. The only thing the court accomplished by dismissing the case was to kick the can down the road and run up legal fees for all concerned, including state government. In the meantime, farmers can, and some will, continue using large amounts of fertilizer and farm animals will continue to pollute Iowa's air, land, and water. Water utilities will be forced to pay increasing amounts of money to remove pollution and the quality of life for anyone in or near the Raccoon River will continue to deteriorate. One other thing. The worrisome wording of Justice Mansfield's ruling is a big step backward and creates a precedent that will make it more difficult for anyone seeking justice in Iowa. From the On the Move section, Promotions, Changes, and Appointments. Noah Koch hired as project engineer at Graham Construction Company. Blake White hired as director of professional services at ADI Group. Ashley Roddinghouse hired as High V private banker at Midwest Heritage. Tanya Weber was promoted to deputy director of communications at Iowa PBS. Also at Iowa PBS, Taylor Shore was promoted to director of emerging media. From the business record calendar, the week ahead, from Wednesday to Sunday, July 7th through 11th, U.S. Youth Soccer Tournament, the crowning event of the USYS National Championship Series, the country's most prestigious national youth soccer tournament, will feature 48 teams competing, with most of them coming from out of state, at James W. County Soccer Complex. And on Friday, July 9th, Zubilation Annual Gala hosted by the Blank Park Zoo. Join Blank Park Zoo in celebrating this year's many accomplishments while raising critical funds for the mission of Iowa's only accredited zoo. 5.30 to 9 p.m. at Blank Park Zoo in the Holmes Foster Event Center. And register now for Women of Influence to be held Thursday, August 5th, 2021, a virtual event from 5 to 7 p.m. Register for free at businessrecord.com forward slash events. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for July 2nd, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thanks for listening.